Well, good morning, Chili Bible. Uh, before we begin, I just want to go through the uh, technical aspects of the uh, Bible reading plan, if you're going to do that with us, uh, some things you need to do. Um, first of all, if you haven't done so yet, you need to download onto your phone, if you're going to do it digitally anyway, you need to download onto your phone a copy of the U version, Y-O-U V-E-R-S-I-O-N, version app onto your phone. And then you need to send, you need to find me on there under the community tab. Um, search for Joseph Horn, look for my ugly mug, and click on me and send me a, uh, a friend request. My picture's on there to distinguish me from about 27 other Joseph Horns that are listed in that app, okay? So find me. And then send me a friend request, and then I will add you to the reading plan. Um, I'll send you an invitation. All you have to do is click accept, and then on January 1, we will start. And um, the way that it works is every day uh, there is uh, there's some reading, uh, Old Testament, New Testament, Psalms, Proverbs, and then a, a section at the end where it's called talk it over where we can talk it over with each other what did you get out of this what did you learn what do you have questions about uh what's going on in your life that the rest of us can pray for etc uh, and so it's it's been a fun time uh we started out this year with i think about 30 some people uh, i think there's about 30 some of you that want to do it again this next year and it is a fun time and uh, and something that is encouraging you can set it up so that it will send you a reminder every day did you read your bible and uh, if you like if you like that or need that encouragement it helps and so uh, anyway uh, if those of you who are on uh, snapchat you know you can you have a streaks function on this just like that and uh, how many days you were in your bible um and uh and it's a it's a good encouraging thing so um if you if you have questions about how to do this see me after church i'll be here i'll walk you through uh if you don't know what i'm even talking about uh, i can show you how to do it on your phone so uh in any case uh, i want to pray for us and then i want to open god's word together god our heavenly father uh we thank you that you do give us an abundant testimony in your word of a God who is far above us and holy and righteous and dwells in unapproachable light whom no man ever has seen or can see and yet who is also near to us and personal and loves us and sacrificed for us and became one of us that he might live among us might die for our sins, might rise from the dead, and might bring us into his eternal dwellings forever and ever. Father, these things are too wonderful for us to comprehend fully, but we understand them well enough to give you praise and to be transformed by them as your Holy Spirit enters into our lives. Father, I pray this morning as we open your word that we would do so with uh, reverence and awe and a willingness to hear what the Spirit is saying to our church. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, I do hope you had a Merry Christmas and are getting ready to face the new year with confidence and joy in our Savior. Uh, it has been a few weeks now uh, due to our Christmas celebration, but I want to turn our attention back to the book of Revelation and look with you today. We've been looking at the seven letters uh, to the churches in Revelation, and we're ready for number six, uh, the letter to the church in Philadelphia, uh, the city of brotherly love, um, or as some call it in our country, the city of brotherly shove, right? Uh, it's a different city uh, here than there. Uh, but in any case, um, uh, this, this letter uh, is found in chapter 3 of the book of Revelation. Uh, it's verses 7 through 13, and it is full of encouragement. Uh, there is no correction given to this church. So if you um, were, were worried today that your pastor was going to have something pointed and applicational to say to you, he will, but not by way of correction, by way of encouragement. Um, so let's, uh, let's open up God's Word. Let's look first at verse 7 there. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write... The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Now, this letter uh, follows the, the basic pattern of all of the other letters. And the first thing that happens in each of these letters is that the letter writer, in this case Jesus, writing through uh, the Apostle John uh, was writing to the church in Philadelphia. Now, this is, as I said, is not the one where Independence Hall is located and where the Eagles play. Okay, so don't be confused. Uh, this, that city in America is actually named after this city, which is located in modern-day Turkey. At that time was the province, of, the Roman province of Asia. And it's located on top of a... 800-foot hill that overlooks the main road uh, between uh, Sardis and Smyrna. Uh, it's on the main military highway that the Romans built uh, through there. And this city was built as a center for advancing Greek culture and religion. So it was built in about, uh, I think it's 186 B.C., uh, so 200 years roughly before the birth of Christ. Uh, this city was built, and it was built uh, by the um, by the Seleucid Empire as a way of advancing uh, Greek culture, Greek ideas, Greek religion. It was a missionary outpost, in other words, for Greek gods, Greek literature, Greek culture, and the the whole, it was so effective in what it did that it eliminated the native language of the place entirely and replaced it with Greek. And and when the Roman Empire took over about about 150 years after it was founded, the Romans the Romans largely adopted Greek culture and philosophy. They renamed the Greek gods, adopted them into what became the Roman Empire uh, and the Roman pantheon. And so Zeus became Jupiter, and Ares became Mars, and uh, Aphrodite became Venus, and so forth. And, 
And so this is an area that is thoroughly uh, pagan in its outlook, in its philosophy, in its worldview, in its religion. And there's a church right in the center of this place. And by the way, it is a church that's probably founded uh, as a daughter church of the church at Ephesus. Ephesus was, was the, the major city of the area, the largest, most prominent city. And Paul went there to found, it, found the church at Ephesus, and then there was a tremendous outpouring of the gospel at Ephesus, such that the entire city was transformed in its culture and religion. And as Christians multiplied in Ephesus, they spread out across Asia, and they planted churches. They planted, in fact, the other six churches that are mentioned in Revelation here. And one of those is Philadelphia. Philadelphia was the smallest church, probably. It's not the most influential. It's not the one that's the richest. It's not the one that is uh, regarded as the most powerful of the churches in Revelation that are mentioned. But it is one of only two to which Jesus gives absolutely no correction. The other thing that you see in this, in this uh, opening line here is you always see in these letters at the beginning uh, of them a description of Jesus. Now, in most of the letters, the description is tied to something that John saw in his vision in chapter 1 of Jesus revealing himself. But in this one, in verse 7 here of chapter 3, you get a completely unique description that is not based on anything that John saw in, the, in chapter 1. It's just based on Jesus revealing himself to this church in a unique way. And all of these descriptions of Jesus, as you read these seven letters, are all tied to something that the church needs to hear and needs to know. Most of the other letters, uh, it's something that Jesus is telling them because of the correction he is about to give them. But in this, it's a description of Jesus that is meant to be encouraging and to prod them along in faithfulness. Uh, the first thing that you read about Jesus is it says the words of the Holy One. Now, you know, if you've been around the church a long time, we use a lot of Christianese, right? Uh, these words that we use in church that people outside the church, they don't, we use them all the time and we don't even think about it and people outside the church hear it and they go, what is that, right? And so we sing, we sing songs like holy, holy, holy and, uh, and nobody ever stops to ask, well, what's holy mean, right? God's holiness Jesus' holiness is a way of, of describing the ways in which God is distinct from, separated from, uh, completely different than us as human beings. That He is holy. That He is, uh, to use a, a $50 crossword puzzle word, He is transcendent. He is above us. He is not like us as people. He is distinct. He, there is nothing evil whatsoever within Him. 
There's nothing touched or tainted by sin about this one that we worship. He is holy. He is completely distinct and unique in all of the universe. He is the one God who is worthy of the name. Jesus is not a mere man, in other words. When he identifies himself as the Holy One, he is borrowing a title that God the Father applies to himself in the Old Testament, right? So when Christians worship Jesus, they are not bowing down before some sort of exalted man like one of the Greek gods. They're bowing down before one who is holy, one who is God. If he is the Holy One, he is God. And it's an explicit reference to that fact. And he also says he is the true one. Now, the, the word here is... You need to, you need to understand this carefully. There, there are a lot of ways that the Bible talks about truth. Okay? This, and sometimes when we talk about... God is true, what we mean is is that everything that he says is truthful. That it, that it is trustworthy, that it is reliable, that God does not lie when he speaks. But that's not the way that Jesus is describing himself here. He is saying, it, you, we might translate this word, the authentic one. The genuine article. The real McCoy if I can be idiomatic a little bit, okay? The real God. The only one there is. The genuine article. The true one. In other words, the God that Christians worship when we worship Jesus, this is, He is not the spiritual equivalent of a $10 Rolex. You know, $30 Gucci purse, right? This, will, this is not... The God that we're talking about. We're talking about the real God. And Jesus is identifying himself as that one. The only one that is really worthy of the name being called God. In addition to that, he is the one who has the key of David. Who opens and no one will shut. And who shuts and no one opens. Now there's one other reference to the key of David. It's in your Old Testament. And the key of David is held by a man named Eliakim, who is the prime minister of David's kingdom. And the key of David is literally a key to the city of Jerusalem. In the old days, you had cities, and the cities had walls, and the walls had gates. And they were literally locked and opened with a key. And the person who held the key to the city, we still do this, right? When we want to honor somebody, the mayor will come out and they'll give you a key to the city. I got one one time. It was this big. <laughs> it, was, it was like you can wear it on your lapel. It wasn't a real key. It didn't do anything. It didn't convey me any actual authority. I was so disappointed, <laughs> right? I wanted one that was like this big, right? And actually worked on something, right? wasn't just a trinket to put in your drawer with all the other junk that you've got, right? Um, but this was an actual key. 
And this man had the authority from the king to open the gates and to shut the gates. And the idea behind opening and shutting the gates is that you were the one who controlled access to the sovereign. That if you opened the gates, you could allow them in. If you shut the gates, no one else had authority to open them. Because there was one key and one way in and out. And when, so when Jesus says he's the one who has the key of David, what he's saying is this, is that he is the one who controls entry into God's kingdom. He is the messianic king. He is the one who controls who comes in and who is shut out. And if he opens the door, no one can shut it. And if he shuts the door, no one can open it. In this, it's very much like, you remember the story of Noah and the ark? It says that when everybody got into the ark, that God shut the door. And there were people on the outside of that ark that wanted to get in, but they could not enter in. Why? Because God had shut the door. And there was no one inside who could open it because God had closed it. This is a reference Jesus is claiming to have sovereign authority over the kingdom of God and to who gains entrance into it. Now, I said earlier that all of these letters, there's a description of Jesus that relates to the message that he gives to the church. So what's this one about? This is a message that is given to a small, persecuted, and faithful church. And they need to know that they're following the real Messiah. That, they, that the God that they worship is the Holy One. The one who will welcome them into His kingdom and who will shut out His enemies. They need the encouragement that that brings. That there is a day coming when relief will come from the suffering they endure. And when they'll be rescued by a good God who loves them and who is holy and genuine and omnipotent. And I think here at the end of 2019 that our church might need that encouragement too. And so I want to read the rest of this letter here with you. Verse, verses 8 to 13. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. 
The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God in the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now again, uh, just to underline the point, there's no correction in any of these verses. None whatsoever. It's all encouragement given to a good church that Jesus is pleased with. In verse 8, what we see is Jesus encouraging them with his omnipotent power. He tells them, look, I'm the one who opens that no one can shut. Well, I've given you an open door that no one can shut. He says, I've given you your ministry in this city, and no one will hinder you from accomplishing what I desire for you. That's what he's telling them. Notice, too, that Jesus praises them for the fact that the, although they aren't powerful, that they're faithful. Church at Philadelphia is small. It is not full of society's movers and shakers. But Jesus does not care about that. Jesus does not care about that. What he does care about highly and what praises them for is persistent, faithful witness to him despite the pressure that they're under. They proclaim the gospel and they preach his word and they live by it. That's what he means by you've kept my word, that they proclaim God's word and they live by it. They obey it. And they will not deny their Savior. You know, one of the easiest things to do, honestly, one of the easiest things to do after you've been a Christian for a while, after, after things get hard or challenging, or when something happens in your life that is difficult and you don't know why God would allow that into your life, do you know what one of the easiest things to do is? To just say, I'm tired. I'm done with this. And I sure wish God would have showed up in my situation and delivered me, and He didn't, and I can't see what His purpose was, and so I'm just done. And to just walk away. And lots and lots of people do that. Over the years, I've accumulated a lot of former friends who've done that. People that I love. People that I still pray for. People who break my heart. The people who have walked away. It is hard to be persistent, persevering, faithful people. But that is what Jesus honors and praises in this letter. And as a result of what they've done with what little power they have, look at what reward they're going to get in verse 9. Now you might not see this as reward, but it is. You've got to read it carefully. Jesus promises in this verse to use his power 
to deal with their persecutors. These people that are their opponents are pious religious Jews from the local synagogue who have refused to recognize Jesus as their Messiah and have persecuted the church so strongly as a result that Jesus says these people say they're Jews but they aren't. And in fact their synagogue is a synagogue of Satan. Let me say it another way. According to Jesus, real Judaism is that which, which results in him being acknowledged and worshipped as Messiah and God. That's what a real Jew is, according to Jesus. He is the promised Messiah. But notice what Jesus does despite his harsh language about these people. How does he respond to his opponents? He says, I will make some of these people bow down before the church and recognize that he has loved them. How's he going to do that? Can I let you in on the secret? This is one of the ways God gets rid of his enemies. He makes them his friends. He makes them his friends. He says, I'm going to use my power because you're faithful. I'm going to use my power to convert some of these people. I'm going to bring them into your church. And they're going to be repentant before you as they realize that the very ones that they had persecuted because they thought that God hated them and they were on his side, that they were on the wrong side, in fact, and that they will come and recognize that Jesus, in fact, loves these people. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? That God takes his enemies and makes them his friends. This ought to remind you of someone else in, the, in your New Testament who's very prominent, wrote about 13 letters in the New Testament, right? About half the contents of the book were written by this one guy who was a very zealous Jew who persecuted the church for years, who oversaw the death of some of its members, and gave approval to it, who got letters from leaders in the church so that he could go, I mean, from leaders in Judaism to go hunt down members of the church to foreign cities and have them arrested and killed. Who am I talking about? Yeah, Saul of Tarsus, who is renamed Paul, right? What did God do in his life? This very same thing. He took a member of a group of people who were his opponents and caused him to see the light, literally. <laughs> and to be brought to a point of recognizing that these are not the people God hates, these are the people whom God loves. Jesus is the Messiah. And to bow down before them and worship with them Jesus as Messiah. And this is part of the reward that these people receive for their faithfulness to God. That even their enemies will join them in worship of Jesus as Messiah. Isn't that interesting? 
that part of the reward you get for faithful ministry is seeing your enemies converted. It's an amazing thing. That's what God promises. And he does this. He he's going to accomplish this through the ministry of a faithful church, using it to make his enemies into his friends. By the way, does God still do this? Does God still do this? Talk to Dennis and Wendy. If you don't know the Mergans, talk to them. God is doing this all over the Muslim world. Taking people who were God's enemies, who thought that they were on God's side, and doing him a favor by putting Christians to death and making them Christians. How about that? God still does this. And he does it through the witness of faithful Christians and faithful churches all across the world. He still does this. And it is part of our reward in following Jesus to get to see it and be used to participate in it. It's what missions is all about. Missions isn't about living on a, in a weird place, eating weird food and dressing in weird clothes speaking a language you don't understand. That is not what it's about. It's about being used by God to receive part of your reward, which is the conversion of former opponents of the gospel into followers of Jesus. And God is going to do that with this church. And by the way, though I'm not a prophet or the son of one, let me just say this. I believe God is still doing that here today in our church taking people who were enemies and opponents of God and making them into followers of Jesus I believe that's God, why God has put us here in this place in this community no one would look at the city of Chillicothe in fact most people can't find it on a map when I, when I, when I place an order over the phone I have to spell it for people no one knows where this is, right? But why are we here in this little town that no one can spell or even pronounce? Because God is in the business of using people like you and me to make his enemies his friends. And part of our reward and blessing is being used of God to do that. That's why we're here. That's what we're about. Let's look at verse 10. Verse 10, Jesus promises to rescue these faithful Christians out of the trials that are coming on the whole world. Now, many commentators, when they read that verse, see in it an allusion to the rapture of the church. Now, let me tell you what the rapture of the church is, okay? The rapture of the church is an event that's described in a couple of different places in your Bible, one in 1 Corinthians 15, the other in 1 Thessalonians 4, another one here where Jesus returns for his church. There will be a second coming when Jesus returns with the church to establish his kingdom on earth. But there is a time prior to the tribulation when Jesus returns for his church and takes them out of, that's how this text reads, out of the troubles that are coming on the earth 
It's not through the tribulation. It's out of the tribulation that is to come. The church is going to be taken out of and removed from these things. And the church goes through it. And by the way, lots of people say, well, well, hang on a second, Pastor. You know, God's normal pattern is to deliver people through things. And how do you know the church isn't going to go through the tribulation? Well, first of all, if you read the book of Revelation, the, the word church is not mentioned after chapter 4 and verse 1. It never appears until chapter, uh, I believe it's chapter 20, it show, we show back up. So where, where are we? We're with the Lord. That's where we are. And, and God deals with the nation of Israel during that seven-year period, and the purpose of the, of the tribulation is two things. It is, number one, the salvation of the nation of Israel who will be turned back to their Messiah, and rec- come to recognize him in fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 12 verse 10 and they will c- come back and recognize Jesus as Messiah and then they will be used of God to evangelize the rest of the world and at the end of that we will return with God to set up his everlasting kingdom now that's a lot of revelation there in a, about five minutes all right but but the point is is that Jesus is telling them look those who follow Jesus faithfully will be taken out of the world and will not go through this stuff. Why? Because our testing is now. Our testing is right now. It's happening. We're going through testing and trial and suffering now. But that is for the judgment of the world, not for the testing of the church. Our testing is today. Uh, but... Um, so this is part of our reward. If you're faithful to follow Jesus, you won't go through the tribulation. This is a good thing. Tribulation is bad. Okay? Uh, if you don't believe me, read the rest of the book, and you'll see. The tribulation is not something you want to live through. And in fact, we won't. We'll be taken out of it uh, before it starts, and we'll return as it ends. Uh, and during that seven-year period, we'll enjoy the, the, the marriage supper of the Lamb when we, the church, uh, as the bride of Christ, are united with him in heaven. Now, verse 11 uh, is an encouragement to persevere, reminding them that Jesus is coming soon and that the crown of life awaits. Now, Jesus' definition of soon and your definition and my definition of soon is not the same. Is that a safe statement? Yes. How long ago was this book written? Somewhere around 95 AD. What year is it? It's 2019 still. It'll be 2020 in a couple of days. It's been a while by our standards. How long has it been by God's standards? I think if you're outside of time and exist in an infinite present, you know, maybe it's not that long. <laughs> I don't know. Okay. But here's what, here's what I do know. How soon is Jesus coming? Soon. Sooner than yesterday. Tomorrow will be sooner than it was today. If I live to be 90, it'll be a lot sooner then than it is now. But Jesus is coming soon. 
Because, you know, here's the thing. I'm, I'm just now 46 years old. And that got here a lot faster than I thought. Can I just say that? It got here a lot faster than I thought. I mean, like when I was 10 years old, and like every birthday was like a decade of my current life, right? Like it would come around, ooh, I made it to 10, you know? That's why when you're, when you're, when you're little, you know, you count the half years, right? People ask you how old you are, you know, I'm nine and a half, right? Ooh, ancient, right? Now I'm like, where did all that time go? How soon is Jesus coming? Soon. How long is our life? Well, Job says, you're but a vapor. Been outside when it's cold? <sighs> Gone. Jesus is coming soon. And since he's coming soon, and since our faith is proved genuine if we persevere to the end of our lives in it, Jesus is saying, look, I'm coming soon. And my reward is coming with me, the crown of life. And it waits for you at the end. If you abandon Christ, your faith isn't saving faith. That's the consistent testimony of the scriptures. If you are a person who abandons Christ and says, you know what? My Christianity is in the past tense at this point. I don't follow Jesus anymore. Then your faith wasn't real to begin with. But if you persevere to the end, continuing to believe and trust in Christ, then the crown of life is yours. The crown of life is yours. And so the encouragement here is persevere. Because Jesus is coming. And the crown of life is waiting. Persevere. Persevere. Persevere persevere what if I told you that at the end of your life as you turn let's say you t as you turn 75 that you would inherit a billion dollars by the way that's more money than you can spend if you get if you get a 10% return on your billion dollars which you can probably go down to you and get them to give you that if you stick a billion dollars in the bank 10% um, annual return is a hundred million dollars that means you have to spend three million dollars a day every day for the rest of your life just to stay even with it I don't know about you but after a couple of months I run out of money to spend I mean stuff to spend money on you know what I mean like what else do I buy I already got my Bugatti Veyron and build a racetrack you know what I mean? Uh, I mean, what am I else what am I going to do? Uh, you know, I, there's, there's nothing that you can't buy, right? Can I submit this to you? That at the end of your life, that you would gladly trade a billion dollars for the crown of life and dwelling in eternity in the presence of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, that you would happily and if you would happily do that, then, then why not persevere in faith now? Because his, he is coming soon, and his reward is with him. 
and his reward far outstrips anything you can imagine having, being, or doing in this life as an alternative. Persevere to the end. Verse 12 is further encouragement to press on in faith. I love these verses. Uh, It says, those who conquer will... What's it say? The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. The one who conquers, the one who overcomes, is a poetic description in these three chapters about those who have put genuine faith in Jesus Christ, that Jesus empowers their life so that they conquer sin and death. And if you do that, if you, by your faith in Jesus, persevere to the end of your life, believing in Jesus, you will overcome the world and its temptation and sin. And when you enter into glory, this is what will happen to you. You will be marked with the name of God and of Christ and with the name of the new Jerusalem. You'll be pillars in the temple of God. What does that all mean? It means this. That when you enter into glory, that you will dwell permanently face to face with God. And that you'll be marked as belonging to Him, to the Father and to the Son. You'll, be continue, you'll continue to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit and you will never be cast out of God's presence. But you will continually and forever serve and worship Him in His presence forever. That's what this is all about. It's a little more poetic description than that, but that's what that all means. And by the way, if the idea of serving God seems a little bit strange to you, it's, it's a reward, it's not a punishment. Because that's what we were made for. We were made to be in relationship with God and to minister before God to one another and before the Lord forever and ever. And sin messes that up. But if you are a believer in Christ, this is what we enjoy. We get to enjoy being in God's presence and serving Him for eternity. There is nothing higher and better than that. To be a pillar in God's temple, to have your name, the name of the heavenly city written on you, means that you are someone who belongs there. That you belong there. I don't know how many of y'all have ever had the experience of being someplace where you don't fit in. Right? I mean, I'm kind of dorky on almost a professional level, right? And so, I mean, really, I'm into Star Wars and, you know, board games and learn a couple, I've learned a couple of dead languages and, you know, I mean, it, you know, I'm a, I'm a useless mystic, basically, right? And, um, and, and so I'm a, a lot of times in situations where I don't feel terribly comfortable. And you just kind of have to kind of plow through that, right? One of the things you have to do as an adult is just deal with situations that you're uncomfortable. 
or where you don't you don't feel like you quite fit you know but if you're a believer in Christ heaven is where you fit where you were made to dwell where the person you have longed to be with all of your life will be present with you forever where all of the vestiges of sin all of the things that make us awkward and don't where we don't understand each other even how we talk you know you ever had that experience where you're talk, trying to talk to somebody and explain how you feel or what you're thinking about something and you just can't get the, even the words right to make them understand and you're just frustrated? In heaven you are fully known and fully loved. And you belong there. You'll be a pillar in the temple of God, meaning that this is where you belong. And you will be there forever. Verse 13 says, if you have ears to hear, hear what God's Spirit is saying to the churches. In other words, not just in this letter, but in the other letters too. My prayer today is that all of us here have ears to hear God's Word uh, to us in this letter. You know, like the church in Philadelphia... Philadelphia Bible Church is not a church of great power. We have only a little. We aren't a massive place. There are not many of us who are influential or powerful or rich. But we have Jesus the Messiah with us. And that is enough to be faithful to the ministry to which God has called us and to persevere in faith in him until he comes for us. That's enough. It's enough for that. Like them, God has given us an open door for ministry in this place. A wide open door. A wide open door for ministry. And our little town that we love, we have this ministry. And the glorious thing about this ministry that we have is the magnificent way... It, that it reveals the gospel. Because, you know the thing about little places and little people, what it says about God? It says that God cares just as much about little places and little people and little churches as he does about the big, the influential, the prominent, the worldly successful, that God cares just as much. Years ago, Francis Schaeffer wrote a book called No Little People. It's a good book. You should pick it up. You can find it used on eBay, I'm sure. But it's a, it's a good encapsulation of the gospel idea that there is in God's sight no such thing as little people. No one who is insignificant in the sight of God. And part of what God, I think, is calling us to do is to display the gospel in a place that people can't even pronounce or spell to people that 
that most of us coming out of this place, we're not going to grow up and be famous, be on TV, be an Instagram influencer or anything like that, right? Any, any other kind of pseudo notoriety that you might get, right? But our calling is to be faithful to the ministry God has given us in this place, in this church, with the people that are around us. And to magnify the greatness of the God who, who called us out of darkness and brought us into the domain of his dear son and gave us responsibility and ministry and the glorious privilege of ministering to these people in this place that are our neighbors. Because God loves them. And we love them too. Amen. And so our encouragement today is to persevere and to be faithful because we serve the holy, true, genuine Messiah, the one who has the key of David and who has welcomed us into his kingdom and who has given us responsibility and blessing to go and invite others into the kingdom too. Amen? All right. Well, let's pray. Father, I hope this morning that your word has encouraged your people as it has encouraged me this week uh, father uh, we pray your blessing on us pray that we might all persevere in faith in jesus christ all the way to the end that we might receive the reward that you have promised to those who genuinely love you and reveal it in their persevering overcoming faith and Father, we, um, we pray for those who have walked away from the faith. We pray that they might return, that they might repent and turn and walk again in faith in Jesus. We pray that if there's anyone here in this room who needs to repent of sin and turn in, for the first time to faith in Jesus, that they would do so today, that, that today would be the day of salvation for them, that they might enjoy the place and the person for whom they were made for all eternity. Father, we look forward to that day. We pray that Jesus would come soon. As the scripture says, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. We look forward to your coming, Father. Help us to be faithful until that day. In Jesus' name, amen.